I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. My name is Tim, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So today is going to be a little interesting. Um, I did not ask Carlos or Hiram to join me on the podcast. Um, you know, I've thought about doing this episode for a while, and I don't have anything written down. It's going to be interesting. We'll see. I've gone back and forth on whether or not I should do this. If you've followed our podcast for any length of time, you might have heard that I've offended people in my family. And that was not my intention. I come from a large family, and uh, they are Roman Catholic, and... When they found out that I did a podcast, they were upset. Because one of the episodes that I did, I I asked and I answered the question, are Roman Catholics saved or are Roman Catholics Christian? And the answer that I gave was no. Well, you know, there's an old saying that goes like this. Don't talk about politics or religion. And that was, that was really kind of a motto in my family growing up. <laughs> oh man. You know, I hope I'm, I hope that I'm preaching to the choir here. I hope that there's other people out there that can relate to my experience. You know, don't talk about religion or politics. And I'm, I'm sure that there's people who've experienced this, you know, Christmas is coming up. Everybody's getting together. Uncle so-and-so loves Trump. And, you know, aunt so-and-so wants him impeached, you know, and it's, it's don't disturb the peace. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. People get mad. And here I am disturbing the peace. Yeah. So I, I get it. I, I understand. Maybe that was a thing in the older generation. It seems 
Well, no, I take that back because a lot of millennials need a safe space and can't deal with arguments either. So maybe it's not a generational thing. But as a Christian, you have to ask yourself, oh, you know, peace at what cost? Am I willing to sacrifice momentary peace in the hopes of preaching the gospel and having somebody come to Christ? These are difficult conversations to have. They divide, they separate. I mean, how do you tell somebody who's grown up in a faith, who's been in that faith for 50, 60 years, 70 years, that's not right. That's not true. How do you, how do you do that? Well, I just want to give a little bit of background and then I want to make this episode to my family. So it's, this is going to be interesting. I mean, what more could I say that's offensive, right? I mean, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anybody, but the Bible tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. First Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It's understandable that when I talk about Christ and, you know, if you may think I'm an idiot, I don't know. I don't, I don't really care what people think about me. I I do care if I hurt people. I, I don't want to hurt people, but I'm just going to speak candidly. I mean, I don't know if our listeners will be able to benefit from this, but I got a message from my cousin, Richard, who I love that guy. He is such a cool guy and uh, sent me a message uh, just recently. And his message said, Carlos Montijo is the man. He is so passionate about Christ and the Bible. I love listening to him on the podcast. Keep up the good work, sir. Oh, and by the way, he's also hilarious when he, quote, tells it like it is, LOL. Well, yeah, I totally agree with that. I I love the fact that Carlos is uh, part of the podcast. I love that he's part of the ministry. And uh, I called my cousin and I asked him, I said, what's, you know, what's going on? And he said, "Uh, I love listening to your podcast. And he you know, he's like, I keep trying to tell the family to, to listen to it. And he says, but they're, they're upset and they're upset because of an episode that I did a while back in which I, I basically said that Roman Catholicism was not Christian. And, you know, I can completely understand why that would be upsetting so I want to I want to just take a, a step back and share a little bit about my testimony and how I came to the position that I'm I'm in now. Because you may know a few things about me, but you know, why am I a Protestant? When I was a kid, I was raised as a Catholic and 
both of my parents were school teachers. And because of that, they didn't want me to be in the public school system because of various reasons. Um, they weren't teaching phonics for one reason in the public schools, and they wanted me to learn how to read through um, phonics. They didn't want me to, they didn't want me and my sister to go through standardized testing. And so they decided it would be better to put us into a private school. Well, the private school that was close to us was a Baptist school. And so here I am going to catechism, being raised as a Catholic, going to a Baptist school. And this is just amazing because I was sure to be raised as a Catholic. But while I was at this school, I obviously began to realize there, there were some differences between the Roman, Roman Catholic faith and the Protestant faith. And when I was young, I was really, really terrified of dying and going to hell. Now, if you're an atheist, you know, you might think that's nonsense. You die and that's it. Whatever. But I believed it. And I still do. Uh, not that I'm going to hell. I believe that there really is a hell. And I was always terrified that I had committed a mortal sin. For those of you who don't know, there's a difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin, and mortal sins are bad, and they'll send you to hell. And I remember I'd do something bad, and I was like, I haven't gone to confession. I don't know if I'm going to, if I die, was this a mortal sin? I mean, it was, it was like, uh, gee whiz, I cheat on a test or something like that, or I'd lie. And I was just, oh man, I'm, I'm going to go to hell. And... Then one day, Pastor Bob, that was his name, the principal and the pastor at North Loop Baptist Church, North Loop Christian Academy. Uh, school was such a blessing. He sat me down and he explained the gospel. Basically pointed out, Tim, all sin is mortal, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, I believe. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so he explained the gospel to me. And that was really the first time that I had peace about it, that I realized that I could be forgiven and this sort of prompted me to go on a journey. Oh man, that's a really dumb way of, of talking. I hate when people, you know, talk about their journey. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that I began to study the differences between the Roman Catholic church and the Protestant church. And there were a couple of differences that there were two things, two main things that I just couldn't wrap my head around. So for my family members, this is what I would point to is one, the Catholic church 
contradicts the Bible. Now, yes, I know that the Catholic Church uses the Bible to support its theological viewpoints. I get that. But that's nothing new. Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus. False teachers will always use the Bible to teach their false religion. Jehovah's Witnesses will appeal to the Bible. Mormons will appeal to the Bible. But in every case, they twist it. And as I began to study God's word more and more, I, this became just obvious. This became just clear as day. But in order to see this, you actually have to read the Bible. And some people just don't want to face that. The other thing that I, I realized that I just, I mean, this was like huge, was the fact that the Bible has been preserved. There's a tremendous amount of scholarship that has gone into examining whether or not if the Bible that we have today is the Bible that the early Christians had. But what I also realized was the fact that the, the Roman Catholic Church has essentially evolved and changed over the years. I think Timothy Kaufman has done a, a, just a tremendous job of pointing this out. He points out that Roman Catholicism is really a novelty of the latter part of the 4th century, that that's really when Roman Catholicism came to be. The early Christians essentially believed what Protestants believe. So those were the two things that I realized, okay, so what do you do when, when there's a contradiction? You know, if we go to a fire and we arrive on scene and somebody says, somebody's in the house and they're upstairs and somebody else says, oh no, they're not upstairs. They're in the basement. That's a contradiction. The person cannot be in the same, in two different places at the same time. You, you know, that's a contradiction. We have to make up our minds. We have to, we have to make a decision. Do we want to go to the basement or do we want to go upstairs? Now, obviously in this case, we would deploy two groups, one to go search the basement and one to go search the upstairs in a primary search. It's just an example. I have to decide which way am I going to go? And I decided, well, I know that the Catholic Church is, has, uh, has changed. The doctrines about Mary, as, as far as it pertains to essential Catholic dogma, have to be believed and, and received by faith. Otherwise, you're an apostate. You're, you're anathema. And we went over this in our discussion with Timothy Kaufman. But the early Christians, the early church fathers, didn't believe these things. And I would definitely commend our listeners to those episodes. There's just so much that goes into this. And when I became a Christian, I decided that I would study the issue more because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't running in vain. The difference between the Catholic Church 
the reason that I would say that they're not Christian is because the Catholic Church teaches that a person is justified by faith and works. What does it mean to be justified? Let's just talk about that word. God has given us his law. And you know how when a person does something wrong, what do they want to do? They want to justify themselves. They want to justify their actions, right? So we've broken God's law and we need to be justified. The problem is, is that God is a judge. He's holy and he's righteous. He's not going to turn a a blind eye to our sin. And so the question is, how can we be justified? R.C. Sproul, who is a Protestant, puts it this way. The doctrine of justification deals with what may be the deepest existential problem a human being can ever face. How can a sinner, an unjust person ever withstand the judgment of a holy and just God. As the psalmist put it, quote, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Psalms 130, verse 3. The question is obviously rhetorical. No one of us could possibly stand because none of us is righteous for an unjust person to stand in the presence of a just God. That person must first be justified. So the question is, how do we become justified? Now, I understand that I've offended people in my family because I've stated that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And this has prompted some people in my family to think, well, you, you, you just think you're better than us. And at the heart of that is really a, a huge misunderstanding and I don't know if, if anybody in my family is actually willing to, to listen to this. I don't think I'm better than you. I don't think that I'm better than anyone. The difference is, is that in, especially in my family, the reason that somebody gets to go to heaven is because they're good. That's what they believe that you're good. If you're not good enough, then you go to purgatory. So when I say, well, I'm going straight to heaven, they hear me saying, well, I'm good enough to go to heaven. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Let me be the first to tell you that I'm not a good person. That's why I believe that I, I, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I need Christ. The Bible actually teaches that there's no one who's good. That none is good. And the reason that anybody can go to heaven is just because they believe in Christ. You see, the gospel is, is the good news. And when we, when we talk about news, we talk about something that happened. If you read a newspaper, you're reading about something that happened in history, in time, in place. It's an event. That's what the gospel is. It's the historical good news 
of an event that happened 2,000 years ago, where God condescended and became man, that Jesus came and that he lived the perfect life and that he died the sinner's death. He substituted himself for us. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you accept that free gift of salvation, that salvation is offered by faith or through faith. And if you, if you believe, then you will be saved. And faith is the instrument by which we appropriate the righteousness of Christ. We need to be made righteous. God is righteous. We've broken the law. And so through faith alone, this is what the Bible teaches us. And the reason that I want to say that Roman Catholicism is not true Christianity is because Roman Catholicism teaches that you are justified by faith and works. So this was the essential question that I had to tackle is how is a person justified? How is a person made right with God? And the book of Galatians is, is what I want to point you to. Because what's happened in the Galatian church at this time is that the Judaizers have come into the church and that they've taught that in order to be saved, you have to believe in Christ and you have to also be circumcised. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Galatians. Starting in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he's saying you've turned to a different gospel. You've, you've replaced the good news that was given to you, that you can be freely forgiven and have everlasting life by belief or faith alone in Christ alone. And you've turned to a different gospel, which includes works of the law. Listen to what he says. He says, not that, there is an, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So, if you're preaching a false gospel, other than what the, has been received from Scripture, from the Bible, Paul says, let you be anathema, let you be accursed. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a gospel that is contrary to the word of God. Now, a lot of Protestants will, when they first get into these discussions, they'll say things like, well, you think that you can just, uh, th that you get to heaven by your good works. And then an ill-informed Roman Catholic will say, well, you think that you can just believe in Jesus Christ and then live however you want. And both sides are misrepresenting the other side. The Bible does not teach that we can believe and then live however we want. As a matter of fact, if you do that, it's going to become apparent to everybody else that you're really not a Christian, that you're a hypocrite. The Bible addresses 
hypocrisy. You're a hypocrite. You're not a real Christian. And for the Protestants, I understand that it's not just by works, it's by faith and works. But this is exactly what the Judaizers were guilty of. They were adding circumcision, they were adding works of the law to the gospel. And this is why in chapter 2 of verse 16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So here's what Paul says in, in chapter five, and this is, this is key. If you want to be justified by God, by adding your own good works. This is what Paul tells you. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So you can't be saved apart from Christ. That's, I mean, I mean even, even in the Roman Catholic Church, they, they teach that it's partly by Christ. So Paul is saying, if you add circumcision, so if you add anything, if you add any works of the law, you can't be saved because you're forfeiting the gospel. And he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is, get this, obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You're cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Well, we know in Ephesians 2, 8, that Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith. If you are cut off from grace, if you've fallen away from grace, if you're severed from Christ, you're lost. You're damned for all eternity. It's what the Bible teaches. I didn't write this book. I'm compelled to believe it. And yes, I know that James 2, I think 17 or 27, I've written about chapter 2 in James where it seems to say that, uh, you know what, this just, this always comes up. So let's just, let's go here. Let's do this. Let me pull it up on my phone Bible. All right. James 2. This is, let's just knock this out of the way. James 2. James 2, the verse that everybody wants to point to. Let's see what it is. Uh, Oh, it's 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. No, I mean, you can choose to twist the Bible in the same way that Satan twisted the Bible. James and Paul are speaking about justification in two different senses. Paul is asking the question, how can one be justified, meaning declared righteous before God? And James is asking, how can one justify or validate their profession of faith before men? If you look at the context, and I'm not going to give a full treatment of this here, but if you look at the context, the hypothetical question that James gives, starting in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That faith. What faith? If someone says he has faith, it's a profession of faith that that James is talking about. 
And let me let me go back down. Let me go skip to verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The hypothetical question that James gives, the, the context of it is a conversation between two people. How do I know that you profess to have faith? Can that profession of faith save you? No, it has to be real faith. How do I know if your faith is real? Well, your your faith will be justified. Your profession of faith will be justified by your actions. Because faith, true and living faith, is always made manifest by good works. That's the inevitable, necessary consequence of saving faith. So James does not say anything about the final judgment. He does not say anything about the last day and having to present your good works before God so that you can be justified or saved. That's not what James is talking about. James is is talking about how can a person justify their profession of faith before other people. He's addressing the issue of hypocrisy. So we've gotten that taken care of, but I want to just say, if any of our listeners have any questions about this, feel free to contact us. And if you're one of my family members, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I, I, I mean, obviously the implications of this are difficult. I don't know what to say. The Catholic church has contradicted itself for my family members. Well, that much should be obvious. You know, it's amazing that a lot of my family members have actually, they, this is getting a little personal, but whatever. A lot of, some of, some of my family members who are Roman Catholic, they have held on to the traditions pre-Vatican II council. And at the Vatican II Council, they they changed some things. I think the the mass was changed. And so some of my family members don't agree with the modern Roman Catholic Church. And they sort of protested, which is interesting because I've pointed out to them, y'all have protested when the Catholic Church went against its tradition you recognized, well, this isn't right. And you protested. If you knew the Bible, you would stand with Luther when he recognized that the Catholic church went not against tradition, but went against God's word. You would stand with Luther and you would stand with the reformers and you would stand with the Protestants You would recognize that Luther and the reformers were trying to call the Catholic church back to the word of God, that they really didn't want to start a revolt. You see, you know, you know, tradition, you know, tradition. And so when they, when they contradicted themselves and they went against tradition, well, we just can't stand for that. Imagine, just imagine if you knew the word of God. And the problem is, is that the Catholic church defied the word of God. They not only broke away from tradition, but they broke away from the word of God a long time ago. 
So I don't know who's going to listen to this. I love my family. It's there's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. I understand the implications of of this. I do. And the implications are are too difficult to even mention. I understand what this means. But I didn't write this book. I'm just compelled to believe it. So I want to play this message by Dr. Richard Bennett. This can be found on the Trinity Foundation. I want to say thank you to Tom Geoditis for um, allowing us to play messages from the Trinity Foundation. Uh, I would like to point our listeners to the Trinity Foundation. Tom Geoditis has been a tremendous, wonderful blessing to all of us at Thorn Crown Ministries. Um, Steve, uh, he's also a huge blessing and he's part of, he's a board member on the Trinity Foundation. And so... Um, I'm just so grateful to them, and I want to play this message by Dr. Richard Bennett. Dr. Richard Bennett uh, has recently passed away. He was an Irishman, and he was a Roman Catholic priest, and he became a Protestant. Extremely interesting story. But the message is titled, let me pull it up here. The message is titled, Justification and the Roman Catholic Doctrine of Salvation. Um, Richard Bennett was, he was a a Roman Catholic priest. And, uh, you know, I come from an Irish Roman Catholic background. This guy was, uh, I, I wish that I had the opportunity to meet him. Just hearing about his testimony is just fascinating. So if you haven't tuned out yet, let me go ahead and play this to my family members. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say. I I mean, I'm not trying to hurt you. I I wish, and, and I pray that you come to the saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and that you recognize that there's nothing that we can do to add to the finished work of Christ. Justification and the Roman doctrine of salvation. The topic of justification while biblically is clear and precise, is quite complex and quite contradictory in Roman Catholic teaching. To help clarify the official doctrine of of the Catholic Church, whose teachings explicitly speak about cooperation in the salvation process, we will show this and we will show the biblical position. Further, as Roman declares that the Roman Catholic Church says that salvation or justification is a grace or quality inside of the person. 
making them acceptable to God, this will be highlighted and the biblical answer to this erroneous position will be given. The full picture of Roman Catholic justification or salvation is a process that begins with new birth, which is said to occur in infant baptism, which purportedly washes away original sin. The process of salvation is a long journey through all the sacraments with the sacrifice of the Mass central to most events. Good works, merits, sacramentals, and saints are all involved, but the focus is always on inner moral goodness, which is always something that you try to increase or to make better so that you become good enough to die in the state of what's called sanctifying grace and to spend as least amount of time as possible in purgatory. The Roman Catholic teaching never gives any assurance, even to those that are called holy or saints like Mother Teresa and others, never gives any assurance that you are ever saved as such. Now the biblical position in Scripture, justification is God's gift to the believer which is imputed to him based on Christ's finished work on the cross. Quite simply, justification is God's righteous judgment of the believer declaring him guiltless regards to sin and righteous regarding to his moral standing in Christ before the holy God. This judgment is legally possible because of the substitutory death and resurrection of Christ Jesus in place of the believer. Justification is first and foremost God's legal declaration of who the believer is. For example, Christ himself said, Now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Justification is God's righteous judgment to demonstrate in the words of Romans 3.26 that he is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The righteous judgment of God is central to apostolic preaching. It is the good news of the Bible. It is the righteous judgment freely given by God. It has been said that Romans is the key to the Bible, and it's been said, and I think rightly, that the diamond on that key is Romans chapter 3 from 20 to the end of the chapter where the description is given exactly how God justifies. So let us take a quick look at that text. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. No flesh is justified by the law, by what we do, by moral uprightness. It is, we are judged by the law. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus, unto all and upon them that believe there is no difference. God's righteousness, his holiness, his attribute of being totally holy, righteous, upholding his holiness through his righteousness, is manifest now apart from the law, but witnessed by the law. 
It was witnessed right through the Old Testament. Like in Isaiah, one shall say in that day, my righteousness is in him. Psalm 71, I will make mention of his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Jeremiah, that this is the name by which he shall be known, God our righteousness, and on and on. It was known and witnessed in the past, the righteousness of God, and now it is manifest by the faithfulness, the faith of Christ upon all them that believe. Christ faithfulness imputed to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are destitute with a bad heart and a bad record. We are depraved by nature. We have a sinful record. We are hopeless before the all-holy God. We have come short of his glory, declared in that verse 23. The good news in 24, being justified Freely by his grace. Freely, without cost, without price. God given. Free means totally free because it's declaring who God is in his graciousness. Through the payment that Christ Jesus made. And the payment before the all-holy God. That Christ paid all. So from our point of view, there is no price. It is freely by his grace. Whom God set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, the propitiation, the appeasement of the holiness of God by Christ Jesus, and that we are, that is given unto us by faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness, to show who God is, for the remission of sins that are passed with the forbearance of God. The final clause, the final purpose of all this, is that God would be glorified, to him only be the glory. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believe it. From beginning to end, it is that God justifies so that God may be glorified, and that he only is gracious. Clearly then, according to this passage, everyone has fallen short of God's glory, possessing a bad personal record because of sin, being justified freely by his grace, a person standing before God is in Christ's redemption, freely given, outside of anything that he can do. Being justified means that since there's nothing for man to do, that he is only to perish in his own efforts, he is smitten by the just judgment of God, and that it is God who has made the provision in Christ. This is perhaps one of the clearest passages in the whole of Scripture that shows that it is God who saves. It is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is freely by His grace. It is absolutely from God beginning to end. There is no middle ground. It is God who saves freely by His, God's grace. There is no such thing as half grace, cooperating with grace, or in any way becoming a partner with God. It is thoroughly God from beginning to end. And it's important to see that. It is God beginning to end. Freely by his grace. It is God who is justifying why the final cause so that he may be just and declare just. That he may appear to be the all-holy one and the one who declares holiness. So the scripture is precisely clear and the state of the person given there in verse 
23 is shown again in other parts of Scripture that it was fallen short means that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 3.13 For you being dead in your sins, that mankind is born spiritually dead, not simply incapacitated or wounded, but spiritually dead. In that day you shall die, was the uh, promise given to Adam, and spiritually he did die, and physically, eventually, he died as well. So we are born in spiritual death, and it is only when we are quickened by the grace of God that we hear the word of God and live. The purpose then is that God might be shown to be just and the justifier, that he alone saves that he alone is glorified. Under the law, for God to judge any sinner righteous means that a perfect life under the law had to be lived and that a perfect sacrifice had to be made. For perfection, it had to be done by God. And the person who did it had to be one who shared and who had our human nature. So it had to be the God-man who paid the price for sin and was the redemption. And this Christ Jesus has done and declared it is finished. Herein is the love of God shown through his son Jesus Christ. It is the gift of righteousness which caused Christ his life. It is the finished work freely given. To whom does God owe anything? Who can meet his standards of the law? Who can bargain with God? Who can think he can offer God anything for his salvation? It is God who saves. And the reason is to declare who he is, the perfection of his being. What is at stake here is not simply salvation. It is the character of God that is at stake when it comes to justification. It is declared who he is and the riches of his grace, that he only is gracious. And we see this, for example, in Romans 2, 7 to 9, that in the ages to come, he might show forth the rich, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of works, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The converse is given in the scripture. Why is the converse given? Why is the negative given? So that we understand who God is. That he alone gives grace, and he gives the gift of faith also, so that no one has anything to boast whatsoever. So scripture, precisely and clearly, as it always does, gives the converse, as well as giving the dynamic positive truth, by grace, and then not of works. The famous Romans 11.6, the famous line that Luther quoted to Cardinal Cantorini, at Ratisbon in Germany when they invited him to come to Trent that they were going now to speak of grace and they were going to talk about cooperation with grace and Luther, will you not come back to Mother Church? We are now going to talk about grace and how we cooperate with it. Luther declared this text right into Contarini's face and said, no, for if by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. The two things are diametrically opposed to each other. Grace and works are opposites. And one cannot stand with the other. Grace 
and works are diametrically opposed to each other in face of our sin before the all-holy God. Same thing is in Titus chapter 3, 7, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The grace that has made us heirs is the free gift of God. First Timothy, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 7, in whom, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Grace is not some mere help or tool that we use. It is the riches. It is the power. It is a demonstration of the very character of God. And therefore is total and full in itself. And it excludes, by definition, anything else that could be added to it. And what I've given here is only a portion of the many scriptures that could be given. Biblical justification, therefore, is perfect and finished work of God. In summary, Romans 8.33, it is God that justifies. Justification is God's work alone to show his righteousness and the fact that he alone saves. Once God has justified any person, he views that person in Christ. For God having given the sinner, forgiven the sinner, reckons to his account Christ's righteousness. Thus, the person is saved by faith alone, as Scripture continues to say, without the deeds of the law. And so, therefore, it is sola fide, by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. Now, after we have seen what Scripture says, we've got to see officially what Rome says, and that's why I've given you the official quotations from Roman Catholic teaching. Roman Catholic teaching in Vatican II in all its decrees throughout the centuries, and again in its new catechism, focuses people's attention on Mother Church itself, so that your faith is in her. For example, paragraph 824, it is in the Church that the fullness of the means of salvation has been deposited, for it is in her that by the grace of God we acquire holiness. It gets people looking to Mother Church. She declares in 982, there is no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. There is no one, however wicked and guilty, who may not constantly hope for forgiveness, provided his repentance is honest. You look to the church to forgive. Like Al Capone in Chicago. And finally, he did get a funeral that was done by a bishop, and he got incense and holy water on his funeral casket to boot. Um, so you look to Mother Church. There's no offense that you forget, that you can do that Holy Mother the Church cannot forgive. And that's what she says in her own documentation. And then she says in 983, priests have received from God a power that he has given neither to angels nor to archangels. God above confirms what the priests do here below. So if the priest says, I absolve you from all your sins, God has endorsed that, they say. He has given power to the priest that he has neither given to angels nor archangels. When you see that there is no sacrificial priesthood in the New Testament, this becomes rather difficult to hold. But this is what Rome officially holds. 
that priests have powers not given even to the angelic kingdom. The process is spelled out also in Rome. For most Catholics, it begins at baptism, which the church administers to him. The Catholic Church teaches as dogma that justification is conferred through her sacraments, which consists of inner righteousness, thereby a man at a status becomes just within himself. The Church of Rome condemns the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. This was done at Trent. Present-day dogma of the Roman Catholic Church upholds the teaching of Trent as infallible. It's not simply that Trent was a good council, but Vatican II says that it was infallible. Modern Rome declaring the infallibility of Trent. And let us turn the page and see what Trent says. Exactly word for word, it's cursing on those who hold for biblical faith. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema, that is, eternally cursed and damned to hell. And also that this comes through their sacraments. If anyone shall say that by the said sacraments of the new law, grace is not conferred from the work which has been worked, ex opere operato, and those words are Rome's own words, even though they're in brackets, but that faith alone in the divine promise suffices to obtain grace, let him be anathema. Rome's reason for cursing anyone who holds the justification by faith alone is logical because of what she refuses to concede. For her justification is not an immediate declaration of God and received by faith alone. Rather, she teaches that grace is conferred through the sacraments, which are her, her own sacraments, and she is able to make a place for herself as necessary means by which this inner righteousness is given. And so she declares emphatically in her new catechism, and the paragraph number is given in the footnote below, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted through baptism. The word justification then, how does it come? Through the pouring of the water and the saying of the words. That is how it comes. Precisely, she says, about inner righteousness. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. That inner righteousness can be achieved by means of our physical sacraments is what the Church of Rome consistently teaches. For example, she says, the Most Holy Trinity gives the baptized person sanctifying grace, the grace of justification. And so she calls grace sanctifying. The grace of justification is the inner process. It is actually an oxymoron, those two words. To say sanctifying grace is to make grace to be a quality inside and to be continuing. So we really have a contradiction in terms in those famous Catholic words, sanctifying grace, because it's making it a process inside and a quality to make 
a person pleasing to God, all of which is a negation of the clear teachings of Scripture. So Rome has declared officially that sanctifying grace is justification. She has shown that they are synonyms, and she has declared that even in her new catechism. Rome therefore states, sanctifying grace makes us pleasing to God. That's paragraph 2024. Infused righteousness as the basis of justification is a negation of the consistent biblical teaching of positional legal righteousness in Christ alone. And I give you some of the texts in the footnotes. I would ask that you would study some of those texts, and there are many more, but where we have the righteousness of God credited to us and some of the glorious passages even in the Old Testament. The redemption which the Lord Jesus effected for his people is finished thus the word of God declares Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the distinction. This is in distinction or in contradiction to what Rome says that we need to be continually infused with righteousness so as to be pleasing before God. In the scripture, it is tetelestai, the Greek words that Christ used, it is finished, it is legally paid for, it is totally finished and done. God's work was finished in Christ. Rome says officially, remembering that the work of redemption is continually accomplished. Exact opposite. Tetelestai, it is finished. Rome says, no, it is continuing. And it's just a summary of the above, what we saw them saying and what we saw Scripture saying. Biblical ordinances in Scripture. We do have biblical ordinances regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's important that we see what they are. These signs focus on the Lord and faith in Him. They are themselves not means of grace. And this is spelled out precisely in Scripture. On page 5, I give some of the Scriptures. Romans 2, for example where we had some Jews trusting in physical circumcision as a way of that they claimed to become children of God. The Spirit writing and giving us the word through Paul says, For he is not a Jew that is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Circumcision of the heart by God. And then the Lord himself spoke the word that the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh profited nothing. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It is the word that God has spoken. It is the spirit that quickens the word and it is spiritually and directly from God. The flesh profits nothing. God cannot be controlled in religious life. The sovereign spirit of God cannot be imprisoned in sacramental system. Christ said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Paul showed how this is lived out in the Christian life, for we are the circumcision that worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And what we saw a little bit higher up, in Ephesians 2.8, by grace are you saved, and the opposite, not of works. 
It is interesting that the Catholic Church actually used the word works in their definition in Trent, where they say ex opere operato, from the work worked. They actually use the forbidden word, work. They use it in their definitions of their sacraments and say, yes, grace is from the work worked, ex opere operato. And so the very thing that Scripture says is not, Rome says it is. It is from the work worked. The precise line that cannot be crossed is to look to physical things as a means of conveying grace. The Bible is explicit that it is the believer's faith is based on the eternal God and in Christ Jesus' finished work, a faith given to him by God and therefore spiritual. The believer's faith cannot be based on any physical works of men whatsoever. God has shown that true faith is his work alone. To claim causative effects, what is given to testify to the Lord's grace and finished work is to think above what is written. And therefore, it is not accepted in Scripture. The process that Rome claims brings in even such as Mary. The grace of God, they say, has also Mary as mother. And this is what she says, going just the first word on page five, going over the page six. Her, that's Mary's role in the, in the church and to all humanity goes still further. In a holy, singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith and hope and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. In Catholicism, grace has a mother. And the mother is there, Mary, which of course is not the Mary of Scripture. Logically, in the formal teaching of the Catholic Church, grace is neither the power of God to, unto salvation, nor a demonstration of who God is, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth, but merely a help given to humans. Thus, Rome defines grace in the following words, quotation, grace is the help God gives us to respond to our vocation of becoming his adopted sons. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. What is she doing there? She's saying that somehow there is something inside you that can spark off a response to this, um, to God's, help, that you get God's help and you can respond to his help. So there is a, at least a spark of goodness in you. That was the same teaching of the Greeks and Greek mysticism that has crept into the Western world and that has permeated mysticism right through Romanism and to, into some of the evangelical circles such as Richard Foster and others in present day um, evangelicalism. It is always a, something to be watched out against uh, where we get mysticism coming in to presuppose like Eckhart of old in Romanism that there's some inner spark within man. Man is dead in trespasses and sins and he is not simply wounded. Rome presumes that he is wounded and can respond. Again and again in Vatican Council II, they actually use the word wounded. They use the word in chains, needing help. And it's the same thing in the New Catechism. They talk about 
grace simply being a help. And so we see that it becomes just like in ordinary daily life, you would lose a blackened deck or tool to do a job. You know, when it comes to salvation, God has given you a help or a tool, and you cooperate with that so that you can save yourself or help God save you. Grace is reduced to be merely a help. When I get speaking in Armenian churches, I always ask, where do we get this in modern evangelical circles? And I start giving some definitions <laughs> from uh, modern evangelicals that fits exactly with the definition of Rome. But that's another point altogether. Here I quote on the paper Thomas Aquinas looking as grace as the quality of the soul. I'll leave that for you to read. As somebody who had been indoctrinated into Aquinas, I like to bring him in, where Aquinas says quite clearly that grace is a quality, like whiteness is to an object that is white. It is that you are inwardly just. And um, Aquinas looking for inner righteousness, and of course contradicting the biblical idea of being legally declared righteous by the grace of God alone. Rome's position turns out to be half grace. And she declares this in emphatic, very persuasive, very modern words where she's gone way beyond Trent to try and put an appeal. She uses words that are very popular in the field of commerce and business like associate partnership with God. Now in our modern catechism in Vatican II, she's going to use words that are highly motivational, whereby you can think that you have a big part to play in your own salvation. And man, does it increase pride and stupidity. But anyhow, <laughs> let us read what she says about merit and being able to have an association with God. This is at the end here of page 6 where I get into the quotation. Under the title of grace and justification in the New Catechism, she talks about merit. Remember the general heading is grace and justification. She states, we can merit in God's sight only because of God's free plan to associate man with the work of his grace. Merit is to be ascribed in the first place to God's grace and secondly to man's collaboration. Man's merit is due to God. The association required by God was solely that of the God-man, Christ Jesus, and not man in general. So the, there's an associate partnership whereby you can merit before God because God has made it possible that you can have this association with him. She says the same, and I remember, and this really touches me personally because I remember saying these words to the dying I must have been at the death side of maybe a thousand people. I have buried thousands of Catholics in my days because I was a parish priest. And how often did I say this to the dying, the very words that are here in the New Catechism. We will read the words, Union with the Passion of Christ. By the grace of this sacrament, sacrament of sick, a person receives the strength and gift of uniting himself more closely to Christ's passion. In a certain way, he is consecrated to bear fruit by convigoration to the Savior's redemptive passion. Suffering a consequence of original sin 
acquires a new meaning, it becomes a participation in the saving work of Christ. The damning doctrine that you can save yourself is taught even to the dying. I taught it myself for years. I would say now offer up your cancer, offer up your suffering. Mingle your blood and your suffering with Jesus' blood so that you can be saved. I saw men and women dying, sometimes cursing God. And it was really, really sad. I saw the import of words like this where people had no peace with God and sometimes people dying, cursing God. No wonder I was giving them a doctrine of Satan that you can participate in Christ's own redemptive work. I thank God I'm cleansed from the false message that I gave for so many years. The extravagant words that negate the very grace of God, the extravagance of Rome goes on in our words. And as somebody said to me during the break, yes, Rome does quote the scripture much more in the New Catechism than she used to do, but look how she twists and look how she turns. This is a great example of Rome using the scripture. Quotation, the cross is the unique sacrifice of Christ, the one mediator between God and men. But because in his incarnate divine person he has in some way united himself to every man, the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal mystery is offered to all men. He called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. For Christ also suffered leaving us Example, so that we should follow in his steps. For Christ, in fact, Christ desires to associate with his redeeming sacrifice those who were to be its first beneficiaries. This is achieved supremely in the case of his mother, who was associated more intimately than any other person in the mystery of his redemptive suffering. Use of scripture, mixing sanctification and justification, and applying sanctification text to justification. And giving the possibility of being made partners with God. Grandiose words that make it sound as if you can work to God in the Paschal mystery. That is Rome's words for the life, death and resurrection of Christ. That you can have a part in that. You can be a co-partner, an associate partner. You can, in a way known to God... Unknown to scripture, the scripture says not of works, not by the righteousness that we have done, not by deeds that we have done. Again and again, scripture says no. Rome gives the message of Satan that you can save yourself and become an associate partner with Rome. In grandiose, eloquent words, I give you some of the scriptures down here below. The work of God is by himself. Hebrews 1, 3, without the deeds of the law, not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast, not of the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And when we come to sanctification, yes, we do take off our cross and follow him, yes, sanctification, yes, we follow Christ in sanctification. When Paul gives you the in the indicative, then he gives you the imperative. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Now mortify the deeds of the flesh. Yes. Be sanctified and take up your cross in his grace. 
But that is sanctification. It is not justification. And the sad thing is that intellectually, those in the hierarchy and in the courier who have given us this new catechism, like Ratzinger, who um, made it possible for the world to get this in all the languages of the world, knows the distinction. And they have purposely twisted the word of God to their own ends. It is sad that the, this new catechism, which I would urge you to have, and I think it is a shame if you don't have, because the Roman Catholic Church are boasting about it, it outsells now the King James Bible, which for 35 years in the United States had been the leading book in the book-selling world, had always been first. Now the New Catechism is the best-seller of all books in the United States of America. And it is diametrically opposed to the Word of God, and when it does use the Word of God, it uses it to twist and turn scripture. Turning the page to 8, I apply to Ratzinger and those men who have given us this catechism, if ye were blind, ye should have no sin, but now ye say we sin, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. It's not as if we're talking to men who don't know the distinctions, they do know the distinctions and they twist them so as to beguile people and keep them into their system. The righteousness of God revealed is the power of God unto salvation. It is an everlasting righteousness and it is by Christ alone there is no condemnation. Rome offers not just first justification through her baptism and through her um, holy sacrament of the mass which can increase it and by her other sacraments such as the sacrament of the sick But she says there is a second plank, and that is her own words. A second plank by which the grace can be restored. For example, it is said here in the New Catechism, in paragraph uh, 1446, it is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. The fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. The second plank is the absolution. For years as a priest, I said, first of all, in Latin, ego te absolvo from omnis peccatis tuus, nomini patris et filii, et spiritus sancti. And then from 1964 on, I said, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit over countless heads. The only thing was that the people continued in sin and continued to come back with the same sins and it did not deliver. There's many of us who would get upset about that who were devout and sincere Catholic priests. There was a very small minority of us who were really believed what we were doing but those of us who really believed um, when we tried to analyze the power behind our words would see that sociologically, even according to the statistics of the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church was on a lower level than the pagan world when it came to how, how she lived out her life. And um, it is very hard as a Catholic priest when you have said these words over people to see that the people continue in their sins. Rome upholds 
the teaching of Romans 20. This is one thing that Rob Zins was pointing out, that there's some scriptures where she has emphatically spoken. And here she says that um, John 20 confirms her teaching that she can absolve sin. When you look at John 20, you will see that it is again the great commission that was given in Matthew 28, Luke 24, and Mark 16, that this is the great commission. It is in summary the gospel. And how did the apostles understand it? What does the act of the apostles say? They went and preached the word. Did they go into little closets and whisper and get people to say sins in their ear? No. We didn't have any auricular confession. The way it was understood and the way it's recorded in Acts of the Apostles, is that the word was preached. It was an authorization of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. It is interesting here, and I give a quotation and the reference from Von Dollinger, who's one of the best Catholic historians until he formed the, the, the old Catholics at the time of Vatican I, where he left the Catholic Church, but recognized as a leading historian in the Catholic Church, he declared, and it is still officially Roman Catholic history, that for 1,100 years, the Church never knew auricular confession as such, and it has been unknown in the Greek world. That it is something that has come very late, even in the tradition from a Roman Catholic point of view. Now, I'm not confusing that with the pronouncements that were given by bishops of, of when a person had committed apostasy in the early church. I'm talking about auricular confession into the ear of a priest, which is the exact definition of the sacrament of penance in official Romanism. So that sacrament as such, as it's now defined by Rome, never existed for 1,100 years. So even like William Webster has written in his books, Roman Catholicism at the bar of history. Romanism is found defunct and obsolete and in contradiction not simply to scripture but into genuine Christian tradition. And that is a double indictment. William Webster's books really bring out the second part, the historical indictment against Rome from the point of view of genuine tradition. The grandiose, grandiloquent words of Rome are shown to be in error by the scripture that God only forgives sins. And I give a quotation from Isaiah 43. Rome's teaching on justification is that there is an interchange between her and between others. That there is a communion of saints. If you listen to Catholic radio stations, you will find very often a mention of the communion of saints and also the treasury of the church. What is the communion of saints? The communion of saints is given in definition. A perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home and those who are expiating their sins in purgatory and those that are still on pilgrims on earth. Between them there is an abundant exchange of all good things. It is this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits the other, well beyond the harm that uh, the sin of one could cause others. And so we have here imputed 
righteousness now one person to another so that it can be exchanged between those who are suffering by people who are just human beings. So this is the teaching of Rome regarding the interchange of spiritual things. In Scripture, it is in Christ alone, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of grace. To assign Christ's role to human beings is a serious contradiction of the truth, that salvation is in him alone. The church goes on to say, and this is even more popular um, if you listen to Catholic radio stations where it talks about the treasury of the church. They define the treasury of the church as the infinite value that can never be exhausted, which Christ merits have before God. Even that is wrong. It is not the church's treasury. His righteousness is in him as he is at the right hand of the Father. It is his and his alone. It doesn't belong to any church. It belongs to Christ Jesus. Anyhow, to these infinite merits, they're going to add the merits of Mary and of the saints. At the end of the page, continuing to page 10, the, this treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury too are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord, and by His grace, have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they have attained their own salvation. Bottom line, you obtain your own salvation with the help of God. You save yourself. And of course, you cooperate in saving others. So they say. So here we have the satanical or diabolical message that imputation can be done by their Mary and by the saints and by people living good lives whose good merits are put into a treasury whereby they can be credited to others. So the absurd idea that imputation is done man to man or woman to woman whereby we can merit for others. Tim may be dealing with tonight like in the apparitions I had memorized as a Catholic seminarian and later on as a priest the words of Fatima great mystery this and many souls go to hell because there's nobody to pray or do penance for them. I was trying by my good works to get Merits so that they could be imputed to others who hadn't done enough merit. The same idea of treasury. And so the same ideas are lived out and taught by the satanical messages of Fatima, Lourdes, Denver, Atlanta, Conyers, and on and on, Lubbock, Texas, and others. Just read Tim Kaufman's books and see these same things. Satan is not divided. He speaks grandiloquently in official teachings. He says the same through his apparitions. So we have the message of Rome. The conclusion, which I really don't have time to go into details on, I'd ask you to read for yourself. It is 
that salvation is to the praise and the glory of God. On page 11, I give a summary from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13. That's in the last paragraph on page 11. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty in high, declaring again the majesty of God, the person of Christ, the image of God, who by himself purged our sins, and is not a, now offering a seated in majesty at the right hand on high, the magnificence, the splendid portrayal of who God is, in Scripture, that He alone is to be glorified and that there is none other. And so I give a summary also on page 12. I would ask you at the top of page 12, since I don't have time to read and to memorize these texts, the wonder of our salvation, God our righteousness, the wonder of the righteousness of God revealed, the Son of Man lifted up, the justification that is in Him. And I'd ask you to memorize those texts to glorify the God who freely saves us by His grace. The conclusion is on page 13 where I declare again the message of our salvation given by the Lord Himself. When Christ was asked by the Jews in John's Gospel, we get this. He was asked, what must we do that we may do the works of God? Like, how can we merit salvation? What can we do to make ourselves good enough? The Lord replied, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. It's God's work that you believe. Again, the message put precisely in the Lord's own words. Repent and believe the gospel, the gospel of God's grace and to his glory. So we pray for the compassion to give this message to Roman Catholics and to give the message day by day as we proclaim the full salvation that is in Christ by God's grace and his grace alone.